Acts chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like, sheep, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opens his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. Isaiah 52 from verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide my portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You've come on a risky night because my voice is a bit croaky and you may hear a loud cough. But you've also come on a very good night. This passage of the Bible is one of the most important, amazing, central chapters of the Bible. It is one that should give us huge cause to rejoice. As we've worked our way through chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, we've always been building to this moment. I said that last week, and I'm glad you've come back. We've been hearing for weeks that God is going to save his people. In fact, he's going to save the nations. He's going to offer free salvation, eternal life to the nations. And then again and again and again, there's a question that's been ducked or postponed. The question of how. Tonight we face that question. How can guilty people live with a holy God? Such an important question. It's an important question personally. It's an important question when you hear how bad our world actually is. And it's not just the Dominican Republic, is it? So let me lead us in prayer before we turn to this passage. Our Father in heaven, you who are high and lifted up, the great I am, we pray tonight you would help us to see and appreciate the work of your suffering servants. Help us to have humble and contrite hearts that tremble at your word and cherish the work of the Lord Jesus on our behalf. And we pray for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may have noticed as Isaiah 53 was read that it's full of quite sobering details. It's a serious passage, a brutal passage in many ways. It's not an easy or a light thing for God to put people right with himself. It's going to take us to some sobering depths of suffering. 
But one of the striking things when you look at Isaiah 53 in the context of the book is that it's surrounded by singing. Do you remember that from last week? Just flick back to chapter 52, verse 8. 52.8. This is before our passage. On page 613, 52, verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. Or verse 9. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. Why are they singing? Why, why so much joy? Well, verse 9. Because the Lord has comforted his people. He's redeemed Jerusalem. Verse 10, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Just before this passage, there's joyful singing, singing at salvation. And then if you flick to the end of our passage, just look at the very next verse after where Emma stopped. So chapter 54, verse 1. 54, verse 1. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who've not been in labor. Singing again. We're surrounded by singing. Here the picture is Zion, this city who lost all her children. Singing because she'll be full again. Either side of the chapter, explosions of praise. You see, God's announcing in between those points a salvation so momentous, so huge, a rescue operation so wonderful, well, those who grasp it end up singing for joy. I don't know if you're new to church things. I think one of the strangest things, if you've not really been around Christians, one of the strangest things when you turn up is, is that we're all kind of singing every time, these kind of cheesy soft rock anthems. Why? I mean, why do Christians sing when we gather? It's not particularly because we like the music I and mean, there's all sorts of tastes out there. It's not because we're kind of optimists or we've got really easy lives. Not at all. I mean, I don't know how you felt coming into church tonight. I guess some of us felt a million miles from singing when we think about what's going on. I know at times I've come into church personally facing grief or serious ill health in our family. And, I mean, just the battle of trusting Jesus in a world that doesn't. Sometimes singing was the last thing on my heart. Some of us will be emotionally or physically exhausted from what's been going on. Sometimes the most you can do is kind of mouth along with the words when you're standing in church. Sometimes, if we're honest, we're closer to bursting into tears than bursting into song. But actually, there is something in this passage, something that once you know, once you grab hold of, once you kind of grip at the center of your life, well, there's something that gives us real confidence that we are in the right with God, that our future is secure, it's guaranteed, it's paid for, it's certain. And it might not get you singing tonight if you're really going through the mill, but it, it gives us reason to sing every day to keep hoping, to keep going for another day. And if that's not you in the crisis at the moment, maybe just you're drifting along a bit lukewarm in your affections, maybe excited by all sorts of things in Edinburgh, but not really blasting out a song to God. Well, let me encourage you to listen hard to this chapter because 
Christians of all people have reason to sing. So what's the message? You'll see on the back of the service sheet, we're going to look at three points to get our heads around this message. The first one is this. God wants us to take a good look at his glorious suffering servants. That's our first point. Take a good look at my glorious suffering servant. You can see the command is there right at the start of the passage. The first verse, 52 verse 13, the first word on page 613, 5213, behold. Or in other words, look, look at this, check it out, take a good long look, eyes on him. Look at my servant and his work. Isaiah is telling us, if you want a reason to sing in a dark world, where you need to drag your eyes away from Black Friday deals, or whatever it is, the Cyber Monday hype, fix them onto the real good news, the solid hope. Take a good long look at my glorious suffering servant. I'm going to say up front, this is a passage clearly talking about Jesus Christ. We'll see that demonstrated repeatedly in the details as we go through. The New Testament makes that point again and again. That was our first reading. Um, If you're skeptical, if you're not yet a Christian, and can't really believe that 700 years before Jesus came, he was predicted, prophesied by Isaiah, well, just listen in. See what you think by the end of the passage. This is an extraordinary prediction of his life, his death, and his resurrection and once you've seen Jesus in history, lots of it makes, makes complete sense. But before we get to what's going on on the cross, which will be point two, I want us to see just how surprising, how strange and startling this passage actually is. You see, when God says, take a good look at my servant, it's strange because he has amazing success. That is, he's glorious and faces terrible tragedy. A glorious servant who's also a suffering servant. Let me just show you that in the first few verses. I mean, look at the the terms that verse 13 describes him in. I mean, it's heroic. You, You couldn't think of words much more impressive than this. This is the super servant that we've been waiting for through these chapters. Behold, my servant will act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now, we may not think a wise guy is kind of a particularly impressive term, but actually, that is a unique figure in human history. The language has the sense not just of wisdom, knowing the right thing to do by God, but success, prospering. I mean, how refreshing that actually sounds when you think our leaders can't even agree what to do, let alone make it happen. This servant sees what's right and nails it. You can see he's a big deal because of the position he's given at the end. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now those are words that are only used of God elsewhere in Isaiah. That kind of respect is not usually given to humans. It's, it's a sign he's no ordinary guy. And wisdom really matters. Our world is a mess. Because humans are not wise. We don't treat our creator as he deserves. Ever since 
great-grandpa Adam, he started the rot, and we've all joined in since. And in fact, at this point of history, even God's people, Israel, even those who are supposed to be his special servants, the spiritual cream of humanity, the light to all the other nations, well, even they had been foolish enough to reject God and turn to idols. If you've been here on these Sunday nights, you will have heard that again and again. Chapter 42 called the nation blind and deaf as a servant. That is, they've stopped listening to God, and so they've ended up in a terrible mess. They're under God's judgment in Babylon. But God has a plan. Better than a plan, he has this man, this man up his sleeve, this servant, this, this super servant, And he really is a heroic figure, not just in verse 13, but actually all of the poems about him over the last, um, whatever it's been, a term. Let me remind you, chapter 42, God said, look, again, look, my servant, my chosen in whom my soul delights, he will bring forth justice to the nations. The international justice mission can alleviate things at the moment but only the servant can actually solve the justice problem. Chapter 49 describes him as God's secret weapon. Do you remember he was hidden in the quiver, about to be drawn out to solve things? Chapter 50 said, when the heat is on, when he's taking a battering, he won't give up on God. We'd heard him saying, I was not rebellious. I turned not backwards. And then here you are, 52 verse 13. My servant shall act wisely. He'll be high and lifted up. He is a hero like no other. After generations of failed worshippers, failed fathers, failed husbands and wives, failed religious leaders, failed peacemakers, failed politicians, failed policemen, I mean, everyone has turned to their own way, but this one man will always act consistently, wisely, pure, holy, a perfect servant of God. I mean, he's just an amazing sight. And so verse 15, kings are amazed at him. He'll have a kind of international impact. Kings will be gobsmacked when they realize who he is and what he's achieved. You want a reason to sing? Well, Isaiah says, take a good, God says, take a good long look at my servant. And yet, and this is the shocking thing, between verses 13 and 15 is a terrible shock. Let's have a look at it. When you take a closer look at this glorious servant, it's not a pretty sight. Verse 14 As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. The the super servant is going to end up battered, beaten. I mean, it is an astonishing sight. Verse 14, disfigured, the face and body so damaged, so mangled, he, he hardly looks human, says the verse. And that's only the start. The rest of the chapter is going to see him wounded, crushed, whipped, killed. 
If you know anything of Roman history, this is a pretty fair description of the cross. It was a hideous method of execution. It wasn't actually allowed to be given to Roman citizens. And Jesus didn't just hang on the cross for three hours in agony. He was also flogged beforehand and crowned with thorns and then smashed in the head with a staff. Actually, when you, when you kind of strip away the, the Christmas twinkle and the, the Easter fluff, right at the heart of Christianity is a harrowing sight. It's not a pretty sight. Which I think must cause us to ask, why? How can this be the center of God's rescue plan? Why would God's perfect servant, the one who was wise, who deserves to be exalted, end up on a cruel cross? And why are Christians singing about the cross? At this point, many of our Muslim friends would say, actually, there's no way God would allow his special prophet Jesus to have a death like that. The cross is so appalling, there must have been a switch somewhere on the way. And although the eyewitnesses mention no such thing, I think you can understand why they might want to think that. Because if he's the wise, obedient servant, well, surely he doesn't deserve the terrible fate. Let's go on into chapter 53, because the picture gets even stranger. Again, you get a kind of amazing, majestic title for this servant. He's described in verse 1 as the arm of the Lord. That is God's mighty power, his rescuing muscle in action. It's the very thing people were actually crying out for. If you were here last week, 51 verse 9, awake, arm of the Lord. It's the thing God promised, 52 verse 10. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations. But actually, when you take a close look at the arm of the Lord, well, it's not actually very impressive. This verse 2, this glorious servant, he didn't kind of drop out of heaven in majestic power. No, he grew up as a man in obscurity. Verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. I mean, no wonder in verse 1, Isaiah's thinking, is anyone going to believe me? This servant, he's supposedly the arm of the Lord, God's muscle, God's personal strength on earth, but when you look at his CV, it doesn't seem very likely, does it? I mean, he's just so weak in terms of his background. He's a root, root from dry ground. That is humble beginnings. So, a teenage mother sleeping rough in Bethlehem. I mean, that's not exactly the majestic trappings of God's king, followed up by a carpentry business in Nazareth. And verse 3, if you'd run an opinion poll to check his kind of popularity, his impact, well, the results would have come back pretty unfavorable. He was despised and rejected by men. Jesus was no people's champion, not the whole time. We've been seeing this in John's Gospel in the mornings, haven't we? Religious leaders hated him. His family at one point called him mad. His best friends ended up abandoning him. 
The crowd shouted, crucify him. Thousands more, I assume, didn't even bother to leave the sofa. He was despised. We esteemed him not. So if you want to find this servant, you, you shouldn't expect a kind of confident press conference at Downing Street or a huge crowd at a fringe venue. It's more likely he'd be in a garden somewhere, crying, alone. Verse 3, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. You see, when you take a close look at this servant, this glorious servant is actually an appalling and unimpressive sight. I think it's easy to, to kind of romanticize or sanitize Jesus' life and death. When I survey the cross, it's all kind of bunnies frolicking around a green hill. Actually, no, it, it's, a, it's a grieved and battered man nailed to a bloody beam. God says, take a good look at my servant and his cross. Behold, But of course, that still leaves us with this big question, why, why, when he's so good, a death so bad, why is this glorious servant living the life of a loser and then the death of a traitor? It's not that he was just trapped against his will. Have a look on to verse 7. We'll come back to 4 to 6, but have a look on to verse 7 of 53. 53 verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He didn't actually protest at the treatment he was getting. And the gospel writers, the eyewitnesses all agree, Jesus walked deliberately to his death and didn't make a protest at his mock trial. A couple of weeks ago in John 10, we heard Jesus say, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down. Of my own accord. So he wasn't trapped. So why the cross? It's not that he deserved to die. I mean, that's obvious, but verse 9 makes it super obvious. Verse 9 stresses it. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he'd done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. I mean, just think about that sentence for, for a moment. He never lied. It's actually what one of his closest friends, Peter, said after three years watching him. He never lied. Extraordinary and no violence. Perfectly innocent. He, of all people, didn't deserve this. It's not that the cross was some tragic accident. Verse 10 makes that really clear. It's not that God wasn't watching and events got out of hand. No, verse 10, this is one of the most shocking verses, I think. It was the will of the Lord to crush him, he's put him to grief. That means we can't agree with many Jews, both in Jesus' day and today, who assume that because Jesus' appearance is so unimpressive and his end was so appalling, that that means he can't be the Messiah, the promised rescuer. No, it's actually quite the opposite. Look, here is God's plan announced beforehand hundreds of years in one of the major prophets of the Bible, telling us Good Friday is coming. 
700 years beforehand. The cross is the rescue plan. As Peter started our service with, Jesus himself said, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed. It is not an accident. It is the plan. So then, why? This is our second point, why? Verses 4 to 6 sit right at the heart of this passage. It's all kind of balanced around verses 4 to 6, and they give us the answer. They explain exactly what's going on. And the answer is going to require us to be painfully honest about ourselves. But nonetheless, this is the best news you can be told. It is the news to make us sing. Look at verse 4 of chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. That's what's going on. He was acquainted with grief because he was carrying my grief. Notice it was easy to miss the point at the time. We esteemed him stricken, stricken by God, afflicted. That is, watching on, it just looked like God had given up on him. It looked like he was a failure. It looked like he had problems of his own. But actually, he was doing exactly what God wanted, providing exactly what we need. He has taken our problems on his shoulders. He has borne our griefs. He has stepped into our shoes. He has substituted himself, taken our place. And that's not just our place in a football game. It's our place in the dock, on the cross. That's the point. This is point two. He suffered the punishment for our sins. Realize that Jesus, the suffering servant, took the punishment for our sins. And however much sometimes you hear church leaders to their shame or authors or TV channels who will try to airbrush this out of Christianity because it's uncomfortable to hear, However much of that you hear, well, just look at verse 5. Isaiah is pretty, I think, stark and clear. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. That language of substitution is just so clear. He for us. He took our sin. Seven times, actually, in just three verses, there's that swap going on. He swapped into our place. It's substitution. It's substitution into punishment. Again, the language is really clear. So wounded for transgressions, crushed for iniquities, chastisements, wounds. Jesus suffered punishment for our sins. And I've described it as our sins. I don't know if you noticed, but verses 4 to 6, they all use the first person, that is us, we, are. That is, this now isn't a kind of neutral description of the servant, taking a look at him from a distance, just an observer, a commentator. No, this is a confession, verses 4 to 6, from those who put him there, from us who put him there, we whose sins had to be paid for. Now let's just pause on that. 
Who is Isaiah referring to when he says us? Well, anyone who puts their trust in this servant. Next week, we're going to go on to chapters 54 and 55. If you look across to 55, there's an open invitation. Come, everyone who thirsts. Come, you don't have to pay. There's an open invitation to benefit from this servant. And actually, if we've been concentrating over the last term in Isaiah, that shouldn't surprise us. Remember, the job of the servant, yes, is to bring back Israel, God's people in exile, he'll bring them back, but also to be a light to the nations, salvation to every country on the planet. The offer is to go out far and wide. That means the us is Jewish people and non-Jewish people, European people and African people, people all over the world, because everyone needs it. We've seen that. We've seen that Israel has fallen into idolatry, and actually we all have. And it's not just people back then. Obviously, the us includes us, us tonight. Any Christian person can echo the words of verse 6 as a true testimony of me. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this glorious servant, the iniquity of us all. So there's the point. Realize he suffered the punishment for our sin. Let me tackle a few responses or objections to that. I'm, I'm aware this is a stark truth. It's not a comfortable thing. It can raise all sorts of questions in our mind. The first one's this, I think. Is this really saying we've committed sins so serious they required punishment? The short answer is yes. Look at how inclusive verse 6 is again. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. That is all of us, the whole room, and each of us, every individual chair. The only question is whether we admit it. See, there's not a person alive who's not at some point decided they know better than God. And in his world, there are consequences to that. Hang on, hang on. We might say, I've never murdered anyone, haven't raped anyone. I know I'm not perfect, but I'm not a bad person. I'm not a Hitler. I'm not like the people you read about on the news. But of course, it all depends depends what the standard is, doesn't it, for good and bad. Most of us agree that a line has to be drawn between right and wrong, but most of us tend to draw it just below ourselves. Do you recognize that? So obviously raping someone is criminal, it's awful. We agree with that. Committing adultery is terrible, it rips families apart. We agree with that, that's what bad people do. But, but lust, at someone who I'm not married to, whether on the TV, the internet, the street, well, that can't be serious because I do it. Stab someone on the street, well, that's criminal. Stab someone in the back with gossip at the coffee machine, well, that's fine because I do it. It's amazing, isn't it? We're just so adept at bending the rules just around ourselves. The line of righteousness is always just below us. But that is just delusion. It's just hypocrisy. 
God's perfect standards will cut right through that. God's value system is very different to ours. His greatest law isn't actually do not murder. His greatest law is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And not one person has done that, apart from the servant. We've all given idols, things God's made, much of the trust and the thanks and the glory that he deserved. That is, we've all transgressed. We've all crossed his line. We've rebelled, and it's, it is serious if you're breaking the most serious commandment. We've all, therefore, got a criminal record that only Jesus can deal with. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. Transgressions is the kind of rule-breaking, the crossing the line. Iniquities is another thing he, he carried. That just speaks of how kind of perverse we are, how crooked we are. So why does it come so naturally to us to lie? Why, when someone else gets a lovely house or job or relationship or whatever, am I so quick to be envious? Well, because I'm full of iniquity. I'm just bent, crooked. Isaiah says, do you realize he suffered for our iniquities, crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the question, have I really sinned that seriously? The other question is, does it have to be punished so kind of brutally? So why can't a God of love just let things slide? Why can't he just forgive and forget? Isn't that what he does? And again, you can find Christian leaders saying that kind of thing, who would teach against the idea that Jesus was punished on the cross. That is false teaching, appealing false teaching, We'd love to think our crimes aren't that serious. They could just be waved off, brushed under the carpet. Or at least, we'd love that to be true for the things we've done. But you hear what's going on in the Dominican Republic. And I don't want that to be brushed under the carpet and ignored, like it doesn't matter. When you see the kind of horrendous things that human beings do to each other, let alone to God, the kind of appalling abuse of the weak and vulnerable, by the strong and powerful, the the deceit, the bullying, the brutality, the butchery of our wars. Well, actually, if God sat back and said, I just don't really care. I'll forgive some of you. It doesn't really matter. There doesn't need to be justice or a reckoning. Well, that would be a horrible God and a scary universe. And if we, with all our kind of double standards, are our weakened conscience, if we feel like that when we look at the injustice of the world, well, how do you think God feels watching the headlines? I can tell you, because Psalm 7 verse 11 tells us, listen to this, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God's a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. God's anger in the Bible is not him flying off the handle with a kind of emotional outburst because he hasn't had breakfast. God's anger is his settled antagonism to evil. He hates it. It's an outflow, actually, of his perfect righteousness. His his character is so burningly pure, white-hot righteousness, holiness. 
It's not just that he can't bend the rules or else there'd be no justice in the universe. It's that he doesn't want to. It's a wonderful truth. There's no abuse that's going to go undiscovered and no injustice is going to go unpunished. But actually, of course, that's also terrifying because if all of us have gone astray, each of us has turned to his own way, well, then each of us is facing punishment. That's why the servant had to suffer. That's why when Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, if there's any other way, do you know he prayed? He prayed, take this cup from me. What was the cup? Well, last week we heard the cup is the cup of God's wrath. He drank it, so we don't have to. And it was no light thing. He was sweating drops of blood as he prayed in the garden. Isaiah says, take a good look at God's glorious suffering servant and realize he suffered the punishment for our sins. You see, Jesus, is, Jesus came as God's servant, not, to, not just as a buddy to kind of hang out with us, or a prize giver to reward people for their good performance, or as a teacher to give us some more rules on how to be good. No, he came to die because we're sitting on death row. Jesus was punished for our sins. That is a sobering thing to reflect on. But actually, for those of us here honest enough to admit that we're guilty before God by ourselves, it is the most wonderful thing. It is what can keep us singing through life, however hard life is. There is the most mind-bendingly generous solution. The suffering servant willingly went to take the punishment for me, for you. Jesus was humiliated, so I wouldn't have to be. The very same God that we've all refused to serve consistently, nevertheless came, God the Son came to serve us. And he's such a hero because it actually works. Over the centuries and the continents, humanity has come up with all sorts of solutions to guilt. You know, go to church more times, give more money to charity, maybe ignore it and hope it goes away. Say prayers, whether once a week or twice a day or five times a day. Wear a hair shirt, make yourself feel bad. Take a pilgrimage to Rome or Mecca. Lock yourself in a monastery, try and stop yourself sinning. Do yoga, try harder, maybe get therapy. But actually, they're ridiculous because they might make us feel better about ourselves. And some of those things are blessings. But self-esteem is not actually the problem here. God is. That is his righteous indignation at us. He's rightly determined to punish evil. And if we think that waving a check would impress him, we're kidding ourselves. The servant's work is so amazing because the acts of punishment will fall and he chose to step in for us. And Isaiah says, those who realize that can rejoice in a glorious future. We haven't got much time. We'll close on this third and final point very briefly. We're going to see more of it next week in chapter 54, where God's city has a glorious future, Zion. And then 55, the open invitation for anyone 
to have a glorious future. But let me just briefly show us that the servant himself has a future in these verses. There's another amazing pointer to Jesus because no sooner is he dead, verse 9, he's dead, buried. Well, verse 10, when his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. So back in verse 8, he was cut off from the land of the living, but now verse 10, he shall prolong his days. That is, he has a future beyond death. He'll be raised from the dead. Death couldn't hold him. Verse 11 puts it like this. Out of the anguish of his soul, he'll see and be satisfied. And wonderfully, just like he shared in our sin and punishment on the cross, we can share in his righteousness and glorious future. Let me close by reading verses 11 and 12. And if you're someone trusting the servant, this is true of you. Out of the anguish of the servant's soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I'll divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many of us and now makes intercession for the transgressors. If you know the Lord Jesus and are trusting him, that is a reason to sing. As we sung this morning, it is well with my soul whatever else is going on in life. And if you don't yet trust in the Lord Jesus, well, chapter 55, verse 6 will tell you, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he's near. Return to the Lord that he may have compassion, for he will abundantly pardon. Let me close this in prayer. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Our Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you that you've paid the price for us at great cost to yourself. And we pray for any here who have not yet put their trust in your Son. Please, Lord, would you give them the faith to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.